Welcome to Cancer HealthCasts, where science is driving hope. I'm your host, Melissa Harris, and welcome to our second episode in the Cancer HealthCast miniseries. Before we get started, I want to do some quick housekeeping and encourage you to listen to our first episode in the miniseries, if you haven't already. We spoke with National Cancer Institute's Dr. Steven Rosenberg about new strides in immunotherapy. If you've already listened, I'm excited to bring you the second episode in our mini-series today, which we'll dive into now. As you all probably know, the COVID-19 pandemic has had all sorts of medical impacts across the world, from life-or-death cases of the virus to ripple effects across the healthcare system. In the cancer space, many people have put off routine screenings, and many cancer patients were afraid to go to the hospital in the midst of the pandemic. NCI and its research community are still trying to understand how the pandemic has impacted cancer prevention, diagnostics, and treatment. And today, we're going to dive into one study that NCI is supporting to examine the impact of COVID-19 infection on patients with cancer. With us to unveil some of the work behind this study is Dr. Larissa Corday, Cancer Therapy Evaluation, Breast Cancer, and Melanoma Therapeutics Head, at NCI's Division of Cancer Treatment and Diagnostics. She'll go into the challenge of standing up this study at the onset of the pandemic, the different elements of her team's data collection and analysis, and where the study is now that we're over two years into the pandemic. Thank you, Dr. Corday, for joining us for our second episode of our Cancer HealthCast mini-series. How are you doing? I'm doing great today. Thank you for having me. You've been leading a study that explains or looks to investigate the intersection of COVID-19 with patients who have cancer. So can you start by going into how this study sort of began and how you got to setting it up? I would love to hear about the process and you know any challenges you faced initiating the study amid the onset of the COVID pandemic. Back in March 2020, as the initial data from from China was coming out, it became clear that um, people who have conditions that suppress the immune system um, have a higher risk of both developing COVID and of having severe disease if they do get COVID. And so that led to an interest in really finding a way to better understand the impact of COVID in cancer patients. And so we at the NCI decided... um, that we would um, open up um, essentially a longitudinal cohort study, which um, is what evolved into the study that we're talking about today, which is NCAPS, the National Cancer Institute Cancer and COVID Patients Study. We uh, decided that what we would do is um, look specifically at cancer patients that were on active therapy because we really wanted to capture a population that did have some level of immunosuppression um, and that we would enroll patients to a study where we would collect data about symptoms, about presentation, about any long-term effects that they had um, from COVID infection, and then information about how the cancer progressed over the course of time. We also decided to collect imaging studies. So when patients were having imaging as part of their 
routine follow-up for their cancer, we collected any imaging um, studies in digital format that were collected during that first six months after their COVID diagnosis. Um, and the reason for that was to see whether we could see both you know, things that happened in um, on imaging as a result of COVID, but also if there might be any changes of, of um, to the cancer itself that occurred in kind of the acute period when somebody has a COVID infection. Um, and then the third thing was that we decided that we would also collect blood samples so that we could um, do some biomarker work to understand the trajectory of COVID in cancer patients, um, to look at things like cytokine, which is sort of how the immune system responds, um, and then to look at things like antibodies and B cells and T cells to see what types of responses to COVID cancer patients are having um, on the cellular level, and then also to see sort of long-term um, how that compares to people in the general population. Um, and so once patients are enrolled, were enrolled in the study, um, the plan is to follow each patient on the study for a total of two years. We set about writing the study uh, early in April of 2020, and um, were able to actually get the study open to patient accrual. Um, I believe it was toward the last week of May. Um, so it was really a, a very quick turnaround to get something up in that period of time. Our studies through our National Clinical Trials Network usually take much longer, um, but we had a great team of people who worked together really tirelessly um, in those first few weeks to write a protocol, to get the database ready, to get the forms up and running, to get the specimen collection kits ready, um, and uh, to think about exactly what analyses we were planning to do. Um, and then keep in mind that we had to do all of that remotely, obviously, because none of us were in the office. So this was done by WebEx and Zoom and email. Um, so certainly that was a challenge, but I think it was, you know, it was kind of just jumping into the frying pan in terms of sort of learning how to work from home really effectively. Once we got the study up and running, we had our first patient accrual in June, and then we had a huge jump in accruals in December of 2020 when there was that first wave of COVID. Um, and then we saw subsequent sort of jumps in accrual um, during the Delta wave and then again during the Omicron wave. And we enrolled... Um, over 2,000 patients to our initial screening step, and I think a total of um, over 1,900 patients to the long-term um, uh, longitudinal study um, and close to accrual in February of 2022. Um, a couple of things that we added after the initial rollout of the study um, were that we added um, pediatric patients. So initially it was only open to adult patients, but we also enrolled um, pediatric patients because we wanted to similarly understand whether there were differences in how COVID presented in pediatrics versus adults, but also in uh, pediatric cancers versus adult cancers. Um, and then we also added a quality of life piece. Um, and then finally, after vaccines became available, we added some additional blood collections so that we could look at responses to vaccine um, when patients who have had COVID but have cancer and therefore immunosuppressed um, did go ahead and get vaccinated to just sort of see whether um, their responses to the vaccine were as robust as we um, what we would expect in patients who had a normal immune system. So that's kind of the nutshell. Definitely, it sounds like you had your hands full. And you know, while the patient accrual had sort of just ended a few months ago, I wanted to see about where the study is at now. It's hitting about its second year mark out of the three-year window you've set, I believe. So what are some of the findings that you've drawn so far, especially as the pandemic has evolved? 
We don't have a lot in the way of findings yet because we're just really starting to do the data analyses. Um, so, you know, as we just said, the accrual officially closed um, as of February 1st, 2020. Um, so we now have all the patients accrued. And I think our first big publication is probably going to include up to the first three months of follow-up on the full patient cohort. And so there's a fair amount of data cleaning and obviously the data analysis that needs to be done. And that's something that we're going to be working on in the coming months. Um, the other thing that we've been doing currently is we have started to send off those biospecimens for analyses. And so we hope to have the first um, big chunk of those analyses done in the next six months. Um, so that will include looking at cytokines, which are markers of inflammation, um, looking at um, immune cell phenotypes, which is essentially looking at what types of immune cells increase and decrease as a result of COVID infection, looking at antibodies, so looking at how well patients mount an antibody response to COVID, and then also how that antibody response wanes over time. So what we know with COVID is that there's a very, you know, at least in, in immunocompetent or, or people with normal immune system, there's a big rise in antibodies after the COVID infection, while people are fighting off the infection. And then once they've cleared the infection, those antibodies stay high for a period of time, but then go down over time. Um, and actually now we're seeing probably, as you know, that even in um, non-immunocompromised populations, people are able to, to get infected with COVID a second time. And so that's partly due to that antibodies don't stay around forever, partly due to the fact that the virus is sort of changing over time. And so um, a response that you had to the uh, kind of alpha variant of the virus might not be the same, uh, might not be able to completely protect you from subsequent variants. And so we wanna look at those types of things and see how those might be different in cancer patients. Does their immunity wane quicker? Do they not mount as, as good an immune response? And you know, we will be able to look at those in the longitudinal blood samples. Um, and then we are also looking at, so initially in the first about six months of the pandemic, there were a fair number of reports of um, people having issues with that, with um, blood clots. And so we're looking at some factors um, that are associated with blood clots and trying to see whether there are abnormalities in those in the initial period after a COVID diagnosis. And then if there are, how long those last and whether that's different in cancer patients than it will be in, in um, what's been described in the literature for non-cancer patients. Definitely. Um, it sounds like, again, that is just such a busy time, but so fascinating to see how you're collecting data and just seeing the process happen. We know that COVID-19 has evolved a lot since 2020, and I know it's a little early, but have you found different outcomes in the patient population you're studying based on the different viral variants of COVID-19? I think it's too soon to say from our data set, um, but we will have data that looks at, for example, over time, um, are we seeing a lot of infections in vaccinated individuals or are we mostly seeing infections in unvaccinated individuals? I think that will give us a sense and we can look at the specific time periods that are associated with the alpha variant, which is the original COVID, uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus, the Delta variant, and then the Omicron variant. Um, so it is early to tell now, but I think we will be able to look at that in the future. So going from the different variants of COVID-19, I want to discuss the different cancers and cancers that people are coping with. So are people with certain types of cancer more vulnerable than others um, when it comes to COVID-19, especially since COVID is a respiratory virus? So, you know, it may impact people who have lung or blood cancers differently, or th this is me thinking out loud, but 
are you seeing any differences across different cancer situations? Um, so first of all, that was one of the very important things that we wanted to learn from this study. Um, and again, you know, our data are quite preliminary, but I can tell you that from other data sets, um, that there certainly does appear to be a difference there. So overall, as you can imagine, patients with lung cancer, I think, um, are more prone to severe disease, most likely because they just have compromised lung function um, for multiple reasons. One, from the cancer itself, potentially from the surgery. And then um, third, you know, if uh, lung cancer, as you know, is associated with smoking, and so smokers would have um, some pre-existing lung damage. Um, the second thing is, is that patients with hematologic malignancies tend to have to receive therapies that are substantially more immunosuppressive than, for example, the therapies that we use for things like breast cancer or prostate cancer. And so those patients, I think, um, are also at more risk, both because their immune systems are more vulnerable to infection, and then um, because of the toll that the types of treatments that they take have has on the body, they are more uh, prone to severe disease. Um, and then the third thing is, is that there has been a fair amount of uh, research looking at um, specifically patients that are on types of treatments that are called B-cell depleting treatments. So those are treatments that we use for certain types of leukemias and lymphomas. Um, and again, because of the type of cells those affect, um, those are cancers where those cells are abnormal, and so you have to target the medications to try to attack those cells. In doing so, you would attack normal uh, B cells as well. And so that ties into not being able to mount a good immune response to the virus, and then also potentially not being able to mount a good res immune response to the vaccine if, if a person is vaccinated. Um, and so there have been studies that have looked at um, serologic responses, meaning looking at antibody levels um, and looking at neutralizing antibodies um, in patients on these types of therapies, B-cell depleting therapies, and have found that those responses are not as robust. And so that is something that we're going to be looking at very closely in our data set. Yeah, these are definitely very important factors, and it's interesting to hear about them. Going back to the quality of life piece that you mentioned uh, at the top of the interview, what have you seen in terms of quality of life for cancer patients who are coping with COVID-19 or who have recovered from their COVID-19 diagnosis? Do you find that they've had longer term impacts or ongoing symptoms. I know it's still really preliminary, but are there any feelers out there um, sort of giving some answers to these questions? Yeah. So again, while we haven't analyzed the data yet in our study, I can tell you a little bit about kind of what went into what we put together for, for our um, for our data collection and what some of the thoughts are here. Um, so, you know, we thought that we would like to look at long-term symptoms. So first of all, we're collecting symptoms that each time the patient is seen for a study visit, they get asked, are you having any symptoms? You know, things like shortness of breath, fatigue, cough, uh, abdominal pain, constipation, diarrhea, all, the, all these types of things. And then the other thing we're doing is we're doing specific quality of life questionnaires where people are asked a little bit more in detail about how um, whether or not they're experiencing certain things and how that's affecting their ability to function. And so we're asking about um, fatigue, shortness of breath, and cognitive function because we thought that those were three of the areas that, um, you know, when people talk about sort of long COVID, those are those are some of the things that really come to the forefront. 
one of the things that we realize um, and that I think our data will reflect is that some of those symptoms that I just described are things that are associated with cancer, right? So it's very difficult to, if you're asking a patient with lung cancer, you know, are you short of breath? Um, to know if the answer is yes, is that because they've had COVID? Is that because they had cancer? Were they short of breath before? Are they more short of breath now? And so some of our data collection will get at that because in some of our quality of life collections, we're sort of asking to quantify things. Um, and so we will get a sense of that over time. Um, but it is gonna be, I think in some ways, very difficult to tease out what's, caused by COVID and what's caused by cancer. Um, and in this study in particular, I'll just add, although we'll be able to look at it, the way to really study it in depth would be to compare cancer patients to non-cancer patients, all of whom have had COVID. And in our study, we're only looking at cancer patients with COVID. So while we can co compare our data to data from other studies that are non-cancer patients, we won't be able to definitively say, yes, 100%, this is being caused by COVID. Um, but I think it will be important to look at these trajectories nonetheless. Of course. And I didn't even think about that, you know, lots of symptoms with certain cancers can coincide with those with COVID. So there are definitely some blurred lines there, and I'm glad you're exploring it. This may be separate from the study itself, but have you heard any instances or observed that patients with cancer have paused or adjusted their recommended treatment plan based on the threat of COVID-19? And if this is the case, how has this impacted those patients' cancer-related outcomes and recovery, regardless of a COVID diagnosis? Yeah, so that's really an excellent question. Um, so I'm going to give you a few different thoughts on that. So in terms of people who are on who are part of our study. We did ask at each study follow-up visit for um, data to be collected on treatment disruptions. So, you know, if a chemotherapy treatment was delayed or if a patient was changed from an IV chemotherapy to an oral chemotherapy because they couldn't come into clinic, um, or if they were supposed to have an imaging study, but they just didn't feel well enough to come in to have that imaging study, we are collecting data on that. So in terms of those types of disruptions that occur as a result of a patient being sick with COVID, we will be able to collect those in our study and report on them. The other piece though of what you asked me is, is it possible um, that people are, for example, delaying cancer screening um, because of fear of coming to the hospital during a pandemic, right? And I think that there is um, emerging data now that that indeed occurred. One piece of that was that people were afraid to come to the hospital. One piece of it is that actually hospitals weren't taking patients to do these very quote unquote routine things. Um, so hospitals had to divert all their resources to taking care of very sick patients. They may have shut down their radiology units to doing things like mammograms, right? Um, and so that definitely occurred. The other thing that happened early in the pandemic was um, that surgeries that are considered quote unquote elective or non-emergent were delayed. So in time periods where there were really high rates of hospitalization for COVID and hospital resources had to be shifted to just take care of those patients, um, surgeries that weren't emergency surgeries or didn't sort of weren't being done to avoid a life-threatening complication 
were sometimes delayed. And so those delays and delays in diagnosis of cancer, I think in the long run, will absolutely have effects on the outcomes of cancers in those patients. Um, and that's something that we're gonna have to contend with. You know, That's something that our medical system is gonna have to contend with. They were, hospitals were between a rock and a hard place, right? You know, There's only so much resources to go around at a particular time. And so I think everybody did the best they could. Um, and things are, are much more open now, and there's a fair amount of catch-up happening right now. Um, but I think we, we did see, um, I treat breast cancer patients, and so we did see over the course of kind of this year that there were a fair number of patients coming in that had a cancer that probably was there for a while, but they missed you know one or maybe even two cancer screenings because of the pandemic. And um, so you know that's definitely, a, that that is one of the sort of, hidden consequences of this this period of time this pandemic yeah i definitely understand that and you know i myself was guilty of like putting off any sort of routine things whether it's going to the dentist or seeing my primary care physician uh, amid covid19 so i could only imagine what it was like for everyone else as well Going back to the study, um, you have, as you mentioned before, about another year uh, slated ahead. So what will this last year of the study look like and how do you anticipate it going um, since you have your patients all lined up um, participating in the study and all of the kind of metrics that you're looking for um, ready to collect? Yeah, so I think the next year is really going to be about data analysis and co completing the data collection. So we have actually, you know, our, our first few patients that came on to the study um, are that, you know, we're starting to have patients complete their two years of follow up and go off the study. So that will all be uh, completed by February of 23, the, the full data collection. Um, and then ongoing over the course of this year will be the analysis of the clinical data, analysis of the imaging data, and analysis of the biomarker data. So we're hoping to be able to, to put some of this information out really over the course of the next year, and maybe even more than that. Fantastic. And, you know, just wrapping things up here, what would you say are some of the lessons learned from the pandemic regarding cancer treatment and diagnostics? In many ways, we're kind of overcoming COVID. I know we're definitely not out of the woods yet, but what should some listeners take away to prevent and treat cancer while they're still maybe dealing with fears of COVID-19? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So I think I think I have, I have a couple take-home messages here. Um, the first one would be that we know um, from, from, from our study, but also from other studies, that patients with cancer do have a higher risk of developing severe disease if they have COVID. So I would just encourage uh, people who are living with cancer to be cognizant of that and make sure that they're continuing to follow public health recommendations for vaccinations, boosters, masking and distancing. Um, and because cancer patients sometimes, even with all those measures, can't mount a good immune response, those things are just as important for their close contacts and family members. And so if a patient can't mount a good re immune response to the vaccine, 
um, but all their family members are vaccinated, then their family members have less of a chance of bringing COVID home to them. So I think that vigilance is still really, really important. Um, that's sort of one message I think for patients. Um, in terms of sort of a broader kind of lessons learned from the past two years, I think in clinical trials, we had to learn how to be flexible and it's going to be really important that even when we don't have this uh, virus to deal with, that we maintain some of those flexibilities. So for things like clinical trials, that could be things like being able to obtain informed consent from a patient remotely. It could mean being able, being patients being able to do some of their study-related visits from home, even some of their cancer care visits from home. We found that you know, we normally, for patients on chemotherapy, had them coming into the clinic every so often just to check in, have their blood work, make sure everything was okay. And some of that can be done by telehealth. Um, and so I think just learning how to be flexible, incorporating the technologies that we've been using for the past two years into good medical care and, you know, really working on sort of recovering the things that we've lost over the past two years. I think that's a really fantastic way of wrapping up what people should be doing and also how NCI as an organization is also trying to remain agile and, as you said, flexible to continue doing the work it does, regardless of what kinds of challenges, whether it's you know a pandemic or otherwise, are coming your way. So thank you so much, Dr. Corday, for you know, sharing a little bit about your study and also um, these key pieces of information about COVID-19 and uh, cancer. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening. Keep up with Cancer HealthCast with our HealthCast show at govciomedia.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll release episodes in this mini-series the last Tuesday of every month. I'll see you next time. HealthCast along with GovCast and CyberCast is a production of GovCIO Media and Research. For more podcasts and to check out the other shows, head to govciomedia.com. Watch out for new episodes released every Tuesday and Wednesday across our shows. You can follow all of them in your favorite podcast platform. And if you like what you heard, make sure to let us know by leaving a review. And if you have any topics you think we should look into, contact us at newsletter at gcio.com.